Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today our guest is Jen Marie Knights, who has written the most wonderful Tudor book. I can't wait for you to find out more about this. Jen Marie, welcome to All Things Tudor. Why don't you tell us about your book? I'd like to hear about it from from you, if you don't mind. Oh, it'd be lovely. The actual idea started with friends saying, couldn't I use my journalistic skills to write a history book they would like to read? i.e. they wanted proper history, but without the boring bits is how they described it. They didn't want conclusions, they didn't want theories, they wanted the ceremonies, the pageants, the dresses, the jewels, the cause celeb. And um, I'd already submitted a book to Amberly on Anne Boleyn, who I've been fascinated with since I was a, a very young child. Uh, it didn't fit their list, but the editor was really kind and let me keep on sending him ideas. And I told him I was toying with the idea of a book of ceremonies and events, a sort of Tudor Hello magazine or something. And we ended up toing and froing and we came up with a Tudor socialite. Actually, it was their title, but I loved it and it helped clarify what we were setting out to do. Uh, and that was writing diary entries as if I was in the royal court not necessarily part of the real intimate circle, but certainly close enough to hear about things and be involved in some of them. And reading the people's own words brought an immediacy to them, reading letters, journals, proclamations. In fact, just on an aside, reading one set of correspondence, one of the writers died and I had to stop and go away and mourn. And that's how close you get. So I wrote many of the entries like news stories or press releases and I, I gave back stories where I couldn't fit them in the time frame when it was happening in, but I could still reveal the events. And I spent a lot of time imagining what was I seeing, hearing or overhearing or eavesdropping, uh, smelling, even feeling. And I just wanted to convey the sense of being there. And I hope that's what I did. Well, that's definitely what I picked up on. And I think you did a wonderful, wonderful job with this book. And I do love the title, by the way. It's so so such a great title. You start out breaking down the reign of each Tudor monarch. Can you tell us about that? Well, I, I did that because I wanted to bring in an introduction to every monarch because I knew there were things about them I couldn't actually bring into the diary entries as I was supposed to be there recording the events as they were happening. So... I wanted to give a sense of who those people were. And, and the biggest one is, is for me, was Henry VII. I, very, I knew very little about him when I started. Uh, you know, we're all told he's a miser. And you, you think of him as being quite old. But realised, actually, Victor of Bosworth Field usurped the throne from Richard III. And I'd always like disliked him because I was always for the underdog. 
Uh, but you don't realize how young these people are. Henry was 28. He was a young man. And that really brought it home to me when he marries Elizabeth. They're a young golden couple, really. And when I read his accounts, uh, his household books, I found he liked music, tennis. He built a tennis court at Kenilworth. That was his favourite castle. He liked books. He favoured printers and explorers. He also, you know, enjoyed uh, watching tumblers and fours and minstrels. He enjoyed hearing young children singing and dancing. He himself played the lute and clavichord and made sure his children had instruments. And I was just like, whoa, this man, he doesn't even really like bloodshed because some of the, um, well, he actually tried to avoid getting involved with um, battles apart from the one that made him king. And that, that was a big surprise. And then, of course, you have to feel sorry for him then because, you know, his eldest son, that he's set his whole, whole hopes on of his his family surviving all into the future, he dies soon after marrying Catherine of Aragon. And less than a year later, his wife Elizabeth dies in childbirth. And I think from that point on, it really altered him. He, he, he became, um, well, Virgil actually describes him as quite a cheerful person, but he definitely changes uh, from being a cheerful person after, after those two events. It seems like he was just brokenhearted, doesn't it? It, it felt like that to me. Yes, it did. I mean, when I wrote about Elizabeth, you know, the funeral and, and how he shut himself away. And, and, and this idea as well of the 37 virgins on the streets of London to celebrate her the passing of a funeral cortege. It really brings it home how young they all were, because I think sometimes we forget their ages. And I mean, she tells him we're young enough still to have children. And then she dies in childbirth, which is rather ironic, isn't it? And the little Very baby sad. is buried with her. Very sad. And, and that really struck home with me. And of course, Henry VIII became king when it was, what, 17 years old? Oh, yes. He, as a second son, he was actually destined to be like Archbishop of Canterbury or something. And let's be honest, he had been rather spoilt. His, his parents had been quite... Um, well, they, they took a lot of what he did. Poor Arthur was treated quite seriously, had his own household. Henry was brought up with his sisters. And I think all the women spoiled him, to be quite honest. And I think Wolsey and Thomas More got it, really, because they advised others to never tell him what he's able to do. For once you've got something in his mind, you'll never get it out again. But, of course, we, we look at him and, and we see... The larger-than-life things he he kind of did, but he was actually quite a complex person. Uh, he wrote a prescription book with with his own medicines and poultices in it. He actually founded the Royal College of Physicians, and I didn't know that actually until I researched the book. And of course, the first part of his reign, he was, he was just like a, a young boy. You know, he was light-hearted, he jousted, there was revels, there was music, he was always trying to delight and surprise Catherine and I think he played at war a bit, he, well in the first part you know when it was with uh, when he was working with Catherine's father, father Ferdinand. He collected weapons, he built ships and do you know but I was disappointed with Henry on one thing actually when he went on campaign 
his soldiers had to put their tents up in deep mud and he didn't use a, a royal campaign tent like predecessors had. He actually had a timber house on wheels with an iron chimney. And I was quite, well, that, that just seemed so, um, yeah, I was disappointed with him with that, like, taking his comforts on campaign. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, with the soldiers in the mud. Yes. But I guess if you, I guess if you're king, you get to do things like that, right? Well, yes. And um, look at the field of the cloth of gold. I mean, that was an amazing event, and I, I actually read both the French and English accounts of it so that I could try and find that balance. And because I needed to know what happened in the French courts, so I could write about it as if I was there. And um, and I thought the description, and of course, people, I couldn't use the picture in my book. But if you go on to Wikipedia, you can actually see the picture that was created of the field of the cloth of gold. And you can actually compare it to what I wrote. So you can see how how accurate the two things are. Uh, but oh, it was amazing. But what struck me about that was um, he visits Queen Claude when Francis I, the French king, comes and dines with Queen Catherine. Of course, I didn't mention, of course, they are married now, Queen Catherine and King Henry. Uh, it was one of the first things he did as he took the throne or ascended the throne, I should say. And he's actually described by one of the people in, in uh, watching the event that he was already rather fat, which I thought was quite <laughs> funny. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> but whether that was just <laughs> whether that was just him being, um, well, you know, he's not as good as our king. I don't know. <laughs> Of everything you've read about Henry VIII, what are a few of the most lavish things he did? Uh, let me see. He did a, a Christmas joust in 1524, which was quite something. Um, it was called the Chasteau Blanche, but really it was White White Castle. And he, he did a court of arms over the Christmas. And he actually entered Queen Catherine's chamber on Christmas Day. And he was wearing a red silk coat and he bore a castle with four turrets in silver with a lady in each turret, it says. Um, and he he goes in to joust. And what he did, two ladies rode in on porphyries, leading two grey beards wearing purple damask. And the two old men asked Queen Catherine if though youth had left them and age was come, could they do feats of arms? And when she said yes, they suddenly revealed themselves to be the king and his best friend Charles Duke of Suffolk and of course he he, he did a lot of jousts um, yes and the one that everyone mentions of course is uh, the one where people say was he pricked with a dart of love which was the Greenwich one on Shrove Tuesday and he wore cloth of gold embroidered with a man's heart in a press with flames all around it and it had the words declare I dare not and that left everybody wondering and, of course, Chateau Blanc that you mentioned is documented as the first time he and Anne Boleyn were ever seen speaking to each other. So um, That's what people say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there, there is not. He actually does know her from earlier because when she comes back from France in 1522, she dances with his sister, 
and with quite a lot of uh, the people that end up running through the narrative, which is sort of 1522 when he first sees her. So if I can get that one. That one, I actually love um, how this one's described because it's um, the company were brought into a great tapestry hung chamber, brightly lit by several candelabra with 32 wax candles. I mean, that's something actually. And at one end, there was a two tiered castle and the, 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 the towers, the smaller towers held banners with three torn hearts with a lady's hand gripping a man's heart and a lady's hand turning a man's heart. And the castle was actually held by eight masked ladies. And there was Princess Mary, his sister, uh, Anne, her sister Mary, and their brother George's bride-to-be, Jane Parker. And there were others, of course. And they were all clothed in white satin. Um, and that's really the first time that she appears on the scene. But I'm one of these people who believe she was born a little bit um, later than some historians um, I, I do the 1507 date. There are several reasons for that. Uh, I know um, quite a lot of historians wouldn't agree with me, but there were things I think that people at the time would have known better than we do. And the Duchess of Feria says that she died before she had reached 28, uh, not 35. And the Camden himself writes that he thought she he was born in 1507. Although people go, well, she couldn't have been born then because she says she was born in Norfolk. But Thomas Boleyn, her father, uh, he inherits Haver in 1506. And the first thing he does is create the long gallery there and does a lot of building work. And they have got his wife, Elizabeth Howard. She's pregnant. Is she really going to want to be on a building site? So I think she stayed in Norfolk while he was doing all the the works. That's just my own theory, though. It's not in the book or anything. It's just something I think myself. Oh, it's a great theory. And I, I'm, I'm like you, I just don't see how King Henry could have missed Anne Boleyn. I mean, she was like a breath of fresh air coming into the court with her European manners and her way of dressing and her charm. And I, I just don't know how he could have missed her. And in fact, Cavendish himself, although everybody always says, oh, Cavendish hated Anne Boleyn, who, he's the one who wrote The Life of Wolsey and was one of his men servants. He actually calls her um, fresh and cheerful in, in very early on in his um, account, which people seem to uh, gloss over occasionally. <laughs> well, that's part of history. People are always finding new things. Well, yes. I mean, that that is what I love about history, actually. It's even though I've written the book, since I've written it, I've found new things and I'm like, oh, I wish I could have used that. Um, there's a classic one, actually. I'm, I'm going to go off um, to digress here. But when I did Elizabeth um, and I did the Tilbury speech, the actual speech he made isn't quite the one we get down. It was created a little bit later, but I was told I'd get lynched if I didn't do it uh, as we now know it today. But what I did come across was a ballad which was um, created at the time. And there were a couple of lines I really would have liked to have added. As she was addressing the troops at Tilbury, they did a march past her. And this song says, the pikemen came marching all together like a wood in winter's weather. 
strokes of drummers sounding, trampling horses, earth and air resounded like thunder. And I thought, oh, I wish I'd found that. <laughs> if you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and of course answer the membership questions join us now at all things tudor look forward to seeing you let's quickly go back to the tudor monarchs um i want to find out what you think about edward and of course the mary and elizabeth oh i didn't i didn't know much about edward when i started Oh, and oh my gosh, he was an unexpected pleasure, but his heart-rending death had me in tears. When I was telling my friends about it, they sort of said, oh, well, wasn't he sickly? And I said, well, no, no, he wasn't. Two years before his death, he, he ran in a tourney in front of the French ambassador. He, he showed himself to his people by riding for two to three miles in full armour. I mean, that's, that's, that's heavy. I read his diary and I just, I don't know how people can say that he's a cold person. Reserved, yes. Um, I think he learned to be reserved. The clashes he details with his sister Mary over her disobedience in matters of religion are quite interesting. She keeps telling him he's a minor and he'll realise differently when he's older and more mature and everything. And, and I'm not really surprised that he's rather irritated um, and I'm sometimes surprised and, and that she could keep her head. I mean, she actually told him once, I think, that um, she would happily give him his, her head. Um, I would recommend anybody who wants to know a bit more about Edward, because obviously there were loads of things I couldn't use. You, you're tied with words in a book. Read his journal and, and his letters to his friend Barnaby. And he's a lad's lad and he wants to go on campaign with his friend and he's telling him about his lovely progress to the English countryside and looking at fortifications while Barnaby's on campaign doing exciting things. And you can actually download this very easily. Um, I think it's the American Universities archive.org where they put things on and I, I'm pretty sure it's on there. And, and it's really, you know, well worth a, a read because it'll really change your mind about this lad. Oh, thank you. And, of course, he's no. very interested in the warlike things, you know, Scotland and what was happening up there, you know, what they call the rough wooing. But uh, his death, I, that that was what got to me. And when I couldn't find it at first, everything I put in the book, I, I attempted to verify from the words of the time. And I'd read about um, Henry Sidney holding him while he died. And I was like, I couldn't find it anywhere at first. And Henry Sidney himself wrote it in a letter to a friend about how he'd held him. And I thought, oh, I, you, you can't read these things and just not be moved by them. OK, let's talk about Mary quickly. <laughs> what was the most interesting thing you found out about her in your research? Oh, I... 
I found Mary a bit of a sad character, actually. Um, she seemed to crave uh, to be loved by a her father, which obviously she felt very saddened by losing and she tried to clash wills with him and that was never going to work and then I I think she made a bit of a mistake in that people had moved on when it came to they weren't Protestants then or or particularly Catholics but they had lived under Henry and there was a trend it was moving towards and when the people said oh, it's not right that Queen Jane is on the throne. It should be Queen Mary. And they backed her. I think she took that to be um, her sign from God that uh, she ought to bring the country back to being fully Catholic. And um, I think she was a bit short-sighted with that. And then, of course, she, she revered her mother to a great extent, and she was determined she was going to marry Prince Philip, who was actually the most eligible bachelor at the time. Uh, and she fell in love with his portrait and she fell greatly in love with the man. But he didn't love her back. And I, I felt so sad for her when he's he's using her, really. The, the thing that got to me, really, with Mary was he goes sailing away to his war and she's left yearning after him and, and waiting and, and watching him go until he's out of sight and she can't see him anymore. And then the ambassadors visit her and she's crying that she's not heard from him, which is not very queen-like, I have to say. Uh, but she was a woman first, I think, rather than a queen. And I think you have to see her in that light some of the time, although she did have quite some spark. Uh, because obviously when Wyatt did his um, rebellion against um, having a Spaniard uh, as her husband, she certainly showed her mettle then because she goes to the Guildhall and tells them she's staying in London, she's not hiding from anybody. Actually, that's when we get a really great character called Mr Underhill. Um, I I. One of the great things about history, I think, is is meeting characters you don't even know about. Um, and you first meet Mr. Underhill, actually, when Queen Jane is in the tower and he asks her to um, be his godmother of his son. And they go off. She sends off um, one of the ladies as her proxy. And he comes back to the throne room after he's had his son christened Guildford after Jane's husband to find that she's arrested. And then the next thing you hear of him is guarding Queen Mary's chamber at the time of Wyatt. And he, he's telling, he's saying how that he's, you know, all the, all the ladies are squealing at all the weapons and things. And then when she actually marries Philip, we come across him again being a, a server at the wedding. And he's allowed to send a venison pasty to his wife who shares it with their friends. And I, I, I like those little touches. I wanted to bring the people in a lot more, not just, you know, concentrating on the higher-ups and the nobles, but I also wanted to show that stratified society as far as I could. But obviously, being a socialite, I, I wasn't really mixing terrifically, but some of the time. Let's talk about Elizabeth. She was the epitome of the Tudor monarch, I, I kind of think. And the epitome of a survivor. 
absolutely. But everything she did was lavish. So uh, I'm curious to see what you believe is the most lavish thing she did. I don't think she was the one that was lavish. She was actually very um, economical. Uh, She did get uh, the people to do it for her in a way. She had this wonderful common touch she comes out when she's crowned and and she's twirling her crown and and she's waving at the people which was quite to the um <laughs> disapproval of the spanish ambassador and but she had that the whole time even when the armada's coming and she's had a meeting at the guild hall she comes out and somebody goes oh, it's the queen it's queen and she comes out and she speaks to them and all through um her reign you get this sense she visits towns. Okay, there is an ulterior motive. She's trying to get people to do these displays of arms because it's a very discreet way of getting people trained up. Uh, but she talks to people and and, and they love her for it. Uh, some people say, oh, she lost a bit of popularity at the end of her reign. I, I don't think that's true. I think uh, a lot of people were still believing that she was their sunshine in their lives. How would a socialite, a Tudor socialite, have spent the day while Queen Elizabeth ruled? Well, the reason I don't want to be an intimate in the court, of course, is I didn't want to get caught up with all the um, waiting and serving and and being just, you know, in one room. I I needed to be on the more periphery of the court so I could move around um, Uh because I honestly wanted to be somebody who could, in, in my head anyway, uh, somebody that would hear outside news would be mixing enough with people to hear uh, opinions of what was going on. Because what we have to remember is the although it's as accurate as I can portray it, I'm also using the words of the people of the time, and therefore you're using their perceptions to a degree as well. I can give you a classic actually. When I was doing the talk with the National Archives, somebody said, oh, you've come across as not liking Mary, Queen of Scots. And I said, actually, no, you can't say that because it's not a case of like or dislike. I am in Elizabeth's court and I'm hearing what people in that court are saying. And that's what I'm using. And it's not to say their perceptions are wrong, but it's just to make people more aware that I'm trying to um, use those people's experiences to bring it more alive, I hope, rather than just being a bit of a dry and dusty recounting of facts. Well, it's a wonderful little book, and I appreciate you being here today. <laughs> I, ha- I have to ask you, what do you have planned next? Well, I've already had a contract from Amberley, and I've written, I don't know when it's coming out or even if it's going to come out, um, I've actually done a Plantagenet socialite because the publishing of this book was held up by COVID. It should have come out a year earlier. So all the time we were under COVID, I was just enjoying myself writing and writing and researching. So I've done all the kings uh, that were Plantagenets from Henry II on to Richard III. It's a slightly bigger book because there's more of them. Um, Definitely. I'm looking forward to having that come out, but I don't know when. I can't tell anybody when that might be. Well, thank you very much for joining me today and being part of All Things Tudor. And again, 
Jen Marie Knights has written a wonderful book called The Tudor Socialite that you really need to get. So thank you, Jen Marie, and have a great day. And thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.